0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Hypothesis episode 10. We actually got to the second digit episode now, and welcome back. So today, actually, we're going to be discussing in the same format, which is interesting news, and then the main topic, which is a continuation from the last episode, actually, because we realized that we have so much to talk about, but in a different perspective and tone. And lastly, we'll end with my story. Well, not really my story, but a story that I researched a bit about it. And my name is Feely. I'm Patrick. And I'm Liam. All right, Peter Patter. (laughs) Let's go get her. First, what's new this week and what have you found interesting?
1: Well, uh, recently it came out that a new type of material arrangement for photovoltaics or solar panels was tested and it crossed a a threshold that's pretty successful so photovoltaics they are notoriously inefficient where they take energy from light that reaches them and then convert it to electricity via the photoelectric effect and this inefficiency is detrimental well not necessarily detrimental but it's not great because You want to get something as efficient as possible, so you get the most electricity out of as small of an area as possible. So what this group of researchers did was they combined perovskite, a type of mineral, and silicon, and surpassed 30% efficiency. So that means out of all the light hitting the solar panel, uh, or or this photovoltaic cell, 30% of it was successfully converted to electricity. So this threshold hadn't been crossed before. It's kind of been a goal for the past while as solar panels have been developed and become more advanced and more efficient. And so this year we finally crossed it. And these results were confirmed by a couple different research groups. So it's we're now above the 30% threshold. Well, yeah,
0: you know I don't hear the word photovoltaic much at all, right? Because when I... Hear about things like these. I normally hear about photoelectric, but photoelectric is very specific, right? When you hit a, well, when you create electrons from basically from light or from photons. But photovoltaic, my guess would be, they are more interested in create some voltage, which is a um, potential difference, which can be easily harnessed more, like better. It it makes more intuitive sense for engineers or people who are gonna use it. And for me, thirty percent efficiency sounds low for for you know for a normal person, I guess, but like we have very few things with high efficiency, like you know one of the most actually the most efficient thing like for engine was carnot engine, which has Robert said seventy percent efficiency was that was very very high, and yeah,
2: yeah, I think like typical diesel engines are like. 40% efficient or something like that, plus or minus something. So, so getting photovoltaic, um, cells at an efficiency of 30% is pretty significant because you're starting to approach kind of gas engines. And the other thing, fun fact, uh, the photoelectric effect, uh, is what Einstein won his Nobel prize for. Actually, um, it's none of the other incredible, infinitely long list of things he did. In his life for physics, um, the fact that when a photon of a certain frequency hits metal, um, it'll eject an electron.
1: Yeah. So, just as a basis, talking about diesel engines and gas engines, the average commercial s- solar panel is only between 10 and 20% efficient. So, we're using all these specialized materials and a lot of space because solar panel farms can be big to only convert about 10 to 20% of the energy that hits them into electricity. So hopefully as they develop these materials and these material combinations more, they can also work towards industrializing the process to make them and so maybe one day just sitting on people's roofs or in massive solar farms will be the solar panels that are 30% or higher efficiency. Also, as another reference point, I believe 30 to 40% is also the energy efficiency of leaves that undergo photosynthesis. So they only use about 40% of the available energy to convert molecules and things into stored energy. Yeah.
0: I mean, this efficiency thing is, is sounds low. But um, as Liam has had graced me with the, a, t- a talk that in- he invited me for the microthermodynamic talks. It's very interesting how they think about these things because think about um, how much energy, how much binding energy in like chemical binding energy in like one gram or, or even like one milliliter of diesel. That's so much. Like one juice is, is a lot. Like a calorie is 4.2 juice. That's that's a lot of energy, right? But we, we or able to harness very little part of it. If you can harness most of it, then it's just like we don't even need—we um, don't need much to go to space. Like we just you know, we need a couple grams of diesel.
2: <laughs> yeah, I thought that talk was really interesting. So, for reference, um, a physicist by the names of James Anglin was visiting my group in Ontario. Uh, he's a Canadian who works in Germany currently. And he was actually one of the the first people to ever come up with a actual experimental kind of design for an analog black hole, but his research now is in this new field called microthermodynamics, like Feely said. And it was such a cool talk because he was it, was it had to do with efficiency and um, down conversion. But basically, he had these like little trick questions in his slides, which were like, if you have this granola bar, if you have like a regular granola bar and you want to, how much energy does that contain? It will contain enough energy to lift the granola bar, A, a kilometer, B, a hundred kilometers, or C, a thousand kilometers. And he's like, well, actually the energy contained in this granola bar will raise it, raise itself to, um, if you convert it into kind of energy to move it upwards, kinetic energy and then convert that into potential energy, it'd be enough energy to raise it 2000 kilometers above the earth's surface. And he's like that's far away enough that you no longer can just use you have to use um kind of like the one over r squared um laws now to describe it so it was really cool to think about that and that's why you know your little fruit fly buzzing around your house it can have a single little slurp of like a tiny little drop of sugar water and it'll be able to just survive forever (laughs) well not forever but for as long as it will survive, live for the rest of its life, probably.
0: Yeah, I mean, bigger uh, organisms are less efficient, right? I mean, that's almost universally true. You think large animals, you have to eat a lot, right? But but the energy contained in those, um, in those food, they're not that much more. Like, not even more, they have to eat a lot more, but because they're so inefficient, much more efficient, they just need to Eat like the bare minimum to survive. Even for humans, right? You can eat minimally to survive. You don't need that much. But to be able to be more efficient, I don't see any way to really solve this problem organically.
2: Well, that's that's kind of what his research was looking into. Because a huge... Like, like in a diesel engine, right? A huge amount of energy is lost as heat and other things. But in... I don't know how efficient plants are. You said 40%, Patrick, but I feel like it has to be higher. I don't know, though. Maybe maybe that is true. But even in humans, you have um, ATP. And that's what he's thinking of, is that ATP doesn't lose a lot of energy. Like We know how it works, but not really why. We know what it does, but we don't really know exactly how, from a physics standpoint, it works. So he's interested in that because it must be a much more efficient process than you know a typical diesel engine or these photovoltaic cells because he said if if, if ATP was only about 40 percent efficient, I think the human body would be around like 400 Kelvin or something like that because of all the excess energy it lost. So clearly it's more than 40 percent efficient or if it's only 40 if, if it's not efficient, it's losing the energy elsewhere. So I thought that was very interesting.
0: Well, the human body is around 400 Kelvin, like 400, 410, right? 36.5 degrees Celsius? Uh, around like 400-ish? 300? Yeah, 300. Oh, sorry, 300. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I missed 100. Yeah, um, anyways, the, um. what was I going to talk about? The efficiency is all about conversion of energy, right? Or but basically, it turned it to the different form. So, in a way, it always has to lose something. Like, there's no way to convert 100%. Even like you transfer light, like you hit a mirror, it does not 100%. It's, it's very difficult. Well, it's, I think it's impossible to have 100% efficiency. So, when you hear about those you know, appliances, has 100% efficiency. They don't mean it. They mean maybe practical efficiency, but in terms of energy conversion, you can't have, you cannot put one joule of energy in and get two joules out. I and mean, that just doesn't make any
1: sense. So, going back to a topic we discussed a few episodes ago, but not so much efficiency, but I believe coefficient of performance, where you can pump, let's say, one joule into a system and get five out, but it's not necessarily a closed system so 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 in this example heat pumps where you put in like five watts of power but the heat that's being released may be 15 or 20 watts kind of thing because it draws from a source and then essentially uses the energy that's input into the system to move heat from a source to a sink, which is uh, a very efficient process, but it's not necessarily efficiency. Yeah, because I think
0: what you're talking about is like, imagine if you want to use five juice, right, and you get 20 out, maybe the heat that you have to put in the system from the reservoir or the, the heat bath is around maybe 50 or 60. Right, maybe 50, 60 tunes that you have to bring in, plus the, the work you have to do to get 20 out. But if you consider the work you have to do, like 5, then then it sounds like, wow, it's very efficient, right? But the actual energy that's going to put in to the system going to be your work, plus the, whatever heat reservoir has to be used.
2: Yeah. Exposing things to reservoirs and open systems is is very useful. It's like you know, if I have a, if I have like a baseball or football or whatever, and I wanna, if I want to throw it five kilometers, that's gonna take a lot of work. It's gonna take a lot of energy. But if I happen to be conveniently standing next to a river that flows in that same direction for five kilometers, I can just toss it in the river, and it'll, they'll take it there for me. It's the, it, it puts some puts some energy in for me that I didn't have to.
0: Yeah, I think. Well, for the sake of time, we can summarize it a bit. So we have this, you know a very efficient photovoltaic cells which are being developed and it's going to keep rising up in efficiency, which is going to plateau at some point, but it's a good sign in term of, you know, using a more sustainable source of energy and such. And on other note, I think we should discuss in later episodes on maybe, you know, some of the Bozeman demon or something. There are these thought experiments on how energy work and heat and whatnot. And there's a bunch of paradoxes that
1: could come up. It would be very interesting. Just to add on to the increasing prevalence of like photovoltaics and solar panels and wind energy, those are becoming less of the issue in its energy storage, which is also might be a fun conversation because you have a lot of conversion going on there as well. But certainly some interesting topics to come. And with that, we will transition into our main topic of discussion today which is somewhat of a continuation from our last episode episode nine in the last episode just as a brief reminder we talked about how physics is replicated in situations so for example in video games how improvements in physics engines and simulations and modeling have led to enhancements in water visualization and interactions with these virtual objects. We also discussed how physics is sometimes portrayed in the media, and so we're going to be continuing that conversation today. But instead of just focusing on how physics is portrayed in the media and the physics of different media formats, we'll be transitioning to how science and how scientists are portrayed and viewed both by the public and through the media, uh, as well as going over some interesting science that we see in popular culture. And so the first thing that I'll bring up, and I think it's on a lot of people's minds when they think of physicists, especially within, I think it's past 15 years since it started airing is the big bang theory so the big bang theory for those of you who may not have heard of it is about a group of physicists and an engineer who are at caltech university in pasadena or i guess not caltech university but the california institute of technology and it's just about their lives and the antics they get up to and especially with a non-science lady who comes into the picture and does some stuff with some of the guys. Uh, and it's also about portraying scientists. So we've discussed before that the physics discussed in the Big Bang theory is fairly accurate. They have an on-site physicist who will write equations and double check their homework essentially to make sure the scripts are accurate and correct. And they also had. uh a neuroscientist, I believe she was a neuroscientist, but Mayim Balak, who was one of the main characters, Amy, on the show, and she actually has a PhD in sciences. So that almost added another layer of authenticity to the show. But it went for 12 seasons and certainly influenced pop culture. But at its core, it's just a group of nerdy people and how they're portrayed by the media.
0: Yeah, and we think before big bang theory or before there are a lot of auto science show but never really go into more like a daily life or even comedic part of it because even for me growing up i feel like physics community or even science in general science community as like or academic communities are pretty closed what i mean is that there are like, they're not very really open up to the world. They don't share much about well, it. You know, they publish papers. They show results. And everything sounds so formal. You have to be like, you think like physicists in the 80s, Everywhere, everyone wears suits and ties to, to class. They go to teach. is so formal. and But that's not the reality. That's not what I see every day. My colleagues, it's not what, well, it it didn't surprise me because you know I've seen some shows, I've seen pictures, but you know it's interesting to see the stark difference, or even in generations of what physics community or academic communities evolved to be.
2: Yeah, and another thing is that not just physics, but science in general, it's it tends to be hard. You know, you're doing research on something, you've spent anywhere from a few years to Your whole life studying, so when you're trying to convey information to the public, you you struggle with it, or you kind of forget how little people know about it, and you have a hard time dummy. Like I don't want to say dumbing it down, but that's 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 kind of what you 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 want to be able to explain it simply enough that a child can understand it, and that takes a lot of practice, actually. Um, so that's that's what I find at least whenever I'm trying to understand something, I have to able to explain it to my friends who don't study physics and i always I, again i always forget like just how much i've been how long I, i've been studying science for like a lot of people don't know a lot about science like one of my friends I, this was a long time ago but like i remember i was talking about atoms and i mentioned a gold atom and you know they've never they never took science they were like a carpenter or something they're like, "Oh, I didn't realize like gold could be an atom." And I was like, "Oh, crap, like, you know, that's just something I've known my whole what feels like my whole life." But I guess if you don't study science, like why would you know that, right?
1: Yeah, it's interesting the types of bubbles that we get in. So, I remember fondly our undergraduate where there was definitely a bubble of it physics students that when we we had conversations, they tended to focus on physics. Or if you joined the chemistry students, they would generally talk about chemistry and same with biology and these other sciences. And trying to go to a different subject and join those conversations was difficult. And I've been told it was difficult to join our conversations just because there was a lot of background knowledge that we have that other people were unaware of. So it's interesting to see kind of people that don't have that same background and it's also just interesting to see how others especially science communicators are able to give people background like thinking about bill nye the science guy i'm sure most of us watched it as kids at some point or even adults at some point in our life and like you were saying it's it's not necessarily dumbed down but it's certainly simplified where you're missing some of the nuances and intricacies but that's needed to give you a good basis to build on and, and so those science communicators who are on that level of say Bill Nye or um Carl Sagan who try to convey science to the public one it's difficult but two it's fantastic that they're there because at least it gives some people the background, instead of saying, "Oh, what's well, an atom?" If you're talking about gold atoms, at least they're like, "Oh, well, I never thought of gold as an atom." So there's still some background.
0: Well, I think the key difference that in science community, in from other communities, about our knowledge, is the, the actual part of it is because it's it feels so fundamental. You know, it's something that we see every day. It's something that people experience every day. And it's not like, well, a lot of advanced things have names attached to it. So, for example, like when we we talk about atoms, we talk about steel, we talk about, you know, bond and stuff is so fundamental to human life and how we see the world. Imagine, you know, when you talk like philosophy, at least you have to know a bunch of names that, you know, like, oh, Kant or Nietzsche. I mean, you don't study those literature. It's kind of like, well... It's hard to talk about, right? But in science, in physics, is is so fundamental that, like, when you think about it, you know, what is wood, what is table, or like the structure, composition of it, is so fundamental that that to daily human life, either like that, you don't even have to go out of your way to look for it. You know, you have to go out of your way to to study Mozart, to study, you know. Um, philosophy but in science like well you're using your phone there's electronics that works and it's there so there's a principles underlying underlying principles are there it is not that far away from you so for us in the community we just talk of it like very you know
1: common knowledge that everybody should know but most people don't i i will just Maybe throw a little wrench in a gear. We don't need to go into it much, but psychology as a field, uh, sometimes it's seen as science, sometimes it's seen as art. And and that's everywhere because we're we're human. We are controlled by psychology and I guess sociology when we're in groups. Uh, and that's kind of a weird sciencey zone where it's okay, there are definitely things that are innate and like should be more common knowledge and should be known about but it's also very much oh well maybe people work like this maybe people work like that apology psychologist i'm not trying to to demean your field of study it's important but
2: it's a very weird science i was gonna say it's more important than what i'm doing (laughs) (laughs) why do we care about black holes
1: Uh, because we can well, to me, it's easier to deal with
0: something that we can logically understand. Like, like it's easier to deal with machines because you know it's designed as is uh, certain rules and regulations. They are logic to how it works. But if I look at the face of like a dog, I was like, I don't know what it's thinking. I don't know. <laughs> I know what's going on in their mind, and it's really tough. Like to me, it's like, you know, I like I like them, but do I? understand them? No, I don't get those dog whispers, people like, ah, you know, you just use your intuition. There's some, you know, theories developed for it, but I don't get the brain. The brain is very complicated and, you know, maybe human behaviors might, may not, might not be that complicated, but the underlying engine or underlying hardware which is the brain is very, very complicated.
1: Yeah, it's definitely... I think the most complicated system that we know of, of course, that's coming from brains saying that brains are complicated. But going back to the idea of the scientific community and the different circles that are within it, I think with the Big Bang Theory, it kind of opened up that door into, hey, this is kind of how the science circle operates. Now, obviously, things are exaggerated and they each person has their own individual characteristics that make them seem a bit nerdier than maybe they would be. But a lot of the conversation and even a lot of the jokes are stuff that are experienced in everyday life. the The number of puns that I've made about physics or environmental sciences or biology or anything like that is probably a lot more than average. But that's just where our brains are usually is with the science. And and that's another thing uh, that's notable about a lot of people who are researchers or professors or involved in academics is it's hard to get away from being surrounded by science because it becomes your life. Uh, w- w- whether you're working like a nine to five research job, even afterwards, you're still thinking about the issues and and the problems you're trying to solve.
2: I think it's like that for more than just science. I think a lot of people's jobs are like that too. Or even when they're home, they're thinking about it. But yeah, like I I agree. Like you know, if I wake up at nine and finish work at five, I'm I'm still thinking about it until I go to bed, and probably while I'm asleep. And then and the Big Bang Theory, yeah, they definitely do over exaggerate some of the nerdiness, but some of the nerdiness is definitely realistic. Like there's one episode where they I forget exactly what it is, but they're sitting around a speaker and the speaker has like some saran wrap on it and they pour some kind of fluid or whatever. Maybe it's a non Newtonian fluid, I can't remember, into it. And they play it and it like bounces around and makes some fun patterns and they're all like dancing around it screaming and like maybe that seems a little exaggerated, but it really isn't. Like I've 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 probably done a bunch of things similar to that. Like sometimes my girlfriend will come home and she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I have this, like the tub half full of water and I've got like pots and pans floating in it. And I'm like, I'm making a, a wave interference experiment and I'm just like poking the water and she just kind of shakes her head and she's like, all right.
0: <laughs> well, I think that what it means for it to be a profession, right? Like professors have to profess, you know, to do it all the time. But actually this is what I don't do. I used to think about physics and nature all the time, and then I realized it's not very really healthy. And also, I don't want to live that kind of life. <laughs> um, there's other facets in life that you can enjoy and or experience than just science. So when I come home, I turn off my science brain. I just don't think about work. I don't think about science. I don't think about nature. I think about the world. I say I just think about art. I think about philosophy. I think about something I want to think about. You know, it just I think makes you more well-rounded as a person because what you see in like a Big Bang Theory, a lot of scientists in movies or TV shows, they're very narrow. They're very pointy. You know, they're expert in one thing and one thing only. And I don't think that's that's a good representation of what a human is because at the end of the day, we are humans.
2: That that's a really good point, actually. Um, yeah. And in, in like in TV, it, the, the the nerdy scientist, that is his life. And that's all he does. And it's all he thinks about. And there are people like that out there in physics and other sciences. But more often than not, they all have these extra hobbies and, you know, social groups that they do other things with. Like a lot of a lot of my physics friends are like accomplished musicians or like really good at like specific sports or they they they're like really good painters. It's weird how a lot of people in academia are. They kind of commit themselves. They 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 tend to not half-ass things. Basically, they kind of go all in or nothing. So so for their kind of their hobbies, they they try very hard to be good at them.
1: I will say, I definitely do know people that are very pointy and one-dimensional who are obsessed with their science or their research, and that's all they'll want to talk about and all they'll spend time on. I think school after high school, so undergraduate and graduate degrees, are not well structured to avoid that lifestyle. I remember spending many long nights in my undergraduate trying to do homework for classes, and at that point you're just surrounded constantly by whatever you're studying, whether it be physics a science or anything else. Uh, I do have comments about some other degrees, but I'll keep them to myself. But it's also interesting to see how that carries on for some people. So I, I certainly know some professors that have their hands in many research pies, and they will be constantly on with their research, no matter what time Of day or night you send them an email they'll try and reply as soon as possible so there there are definitely people that exist who are one-dimensional and quite pointy about their research uh but from what i found it's also for the most part very well-rounded people
0: yeah I think one of our good fortune was that we went to a small university where our graduating class in our programs are small, so most of the friend groups that we have are well we have some overlaps, but our friends' group are quite distinct, and even though we have some overlap, like we we like when I started university, I didn't have physics friends because I didn't know who was in physics, and most of my friends. Which are very good friend now. Like they're not in physics, which actually helps me a lot in terms of you know social, of uh, socializing or being around people who are not very focused or don't talk about your stuff or your work or your studies. Doing free time, you can just enjoy yourself. You talk to them about life or other things, and to me, that's very valuable. You know, it makes you more
1: of a person, in my opinion yeah it's certainly useful to have different groups of people so ones you can bounce ideas off of like in in sciences and maybe your research lab or a department in a university but certainly having other people with different backgrounds and experience is nice uh just one thing about a comment that was made earlier where people are portrayed as knowing like very small amounts except for their specific topic and especially like those so socially awkward scientists. Another thing that I've noticed in a lot of like science fiction thrillers or things like that is that they'll have that one person who seems to know everything. It's like, oh yeah, you 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 have your doctorate degree. You must know about this completely unrelated topic, which I unless you're like really into reading encyclopedias or maybe switch programs after you finish one degree into another, then chances are, you know, a lot about one topic and maybe not a lot about most other topics.
2: Yeah. Like, like two cartoons I think of are Rick from Rick and Morty and then Professor Farnsworth from Futurama. Like, it seems that whatever branch of science comes up, whatever problem comes up, they have some solution for it. And that's fun and makes for good tv but it's not really realistic like i couldn't tell you anything about biology right like most most scientists they they had, maybe if they're not on one specific research path in, instead of like a straight line it's more of a cone so things related to their main topic kind of spread out from that line and make the cone but for the for everywhere else they don't know much about
0: right phd is to train to be an expert in a topic that is what it's all about, but we at least know like all branches of at least undergrad level physics that we can answer like but but okay, I think in our perspective that what we know sounds like oh you know we don't know much about you know a lot of topics, but compared to people who don't study physics, we actually know a lot about the topics we don't study, I think. We give, don't give ourselves that much credit because we see how deep the well goes down, right? Because we know that we don't know, but other people don't know what they don't know. Mm. <laughs> so there is this dilemma too, of like, well, then how you live, like, what do I really know? But, you know, that's a question for philosophers and other times.
1: I, I mean, I think we're all doing a PhD currently, which is doctor of philosophy. So okay. might be a good question to ask ourselves. Uh but I I must say that was another benefit of going to a small school, besides being having like a nice close friend group, was not having specializations in our degree. So since there were so few of us, we all had to take the same courses. And that meant that we got To experience a broad spectrum of different fields of physics through our courses and through teaching labs that other students at larger universities might not necessarily experience. For example, at my current university, they have different specializations within the physics department. So someone who's studying astrophysics may never experience a biophysics course and vice versa. Whereas our undergraduate, we were able to have less focus courses, but that also gave us a broader idea of what is there and kind of allowed us to look into different branches of, I guess, the tree of physics, if you will. Well, I think you'd
0: move on on our experiences a little bit. And I think our t- topic, I think, I think Liam put that was that we have seen a lot of these scientific terms around in daily life, in media, in TV, that are completely useless, uh, meaningless to us. Like, I think they put down the quantum dish soap, <laughs> or you know, the the, the quantum technology to use on the dishwasher. I was like, what quantum? Like, it uh, doesn't make any sense. Or you know, the healing crystal, or well, that's a hoax. <laughs> Don't come at me for it, but it is a hoax.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's. It's really funny that people quantum's a, the big buzzword. People don't put you know relativistic dish soap on it. They always put quantum. They um, I don't know what it is about that word, but people like it. Even in like video games, you'll pick up gun and it's like quantum discombobulator or something like that. And like of course the people who made that have no idea what it is. But even. On my bus ride to work there's the quantum healing institute which is like this shack on the side of a road somewhere (laughs) where you know someone's scamming people um so yeah it comes back to like you know lack of i don't want to say lack of education because you can be educated and not know about science and physics but I, i i'm not sure how to how to word it but People who don't know about what quantum quantum just means things are discrete, they're in little chunks, they're not continuous. Like, that has nothing to do with my dish soap, but people will see it and they'll still buy it.
0: Well, I think it's the way that uh, the media perpetuates the use of the word, right? It, it's, it sounds like, imagine when we hear about quantum computers, we think, oh, you know, oh, there's quantum system. But for people who don't study science, it sounds like, Oh my god, there is this jump in technology. It just has the word called quantum in front of it. So quantum means you know technological advances. So it doesn't mean the actual definition of what it is, but the use of the word has been perpetuated by the media as a leap forward in humanity instead of what it actually is. You know, when, when laser comes out, we know what laser is, but what it means to a lot of people are not you know light amplification right is it means like wow this is a beam of light or it has, it's just completely different meaning that's were taught to us or
1: to the majority of people by media yeah i i think radiation is also one because people are like oh it's radiation there's a nuclear bomb going on somewhere or nuclear fallout. And it's like, well, no, technically we get radiation from the sun and from cosmic rays constantly. And part of me is curious where that lack of understanding comes from. Because I I think Liam put this and he can probably talk about it a lot more, but people who may not be in the sciences or aren't as passionate about science as people who study different areas of science tend to tell people that they don't like it or that they're bad at science or math or different topics.
2: Yeah, that's something that's always made me think. It's it's perplexed me. And I don't know, maybe people are intimidated of people they think are smarter than them. I mean, scientists are a bunch of nerds. Like You shouldn't be intimidated of them. They, they, they're weird. Fair enough. Yeah, like my most of my family and friends they like they don't know what I do. And again, fair enough, it's a it's a bunch of math, but you know, I'll, I'll meet someone for the first time and say, "Hi, I'm Liam and I study physics. I'm a physicist." And the first thing almost all the time they say is, "Oh, wow, I was really bad at math and physics in high school." And I'm like, "Wow, congratulations. Like, why I don't know. If someone comes up to me and says like, I'm really happy with my hair today, I wouldn't say, well, I'm not happy with mine. Like, it it doesn't make sense to me why people are so ready to admit that they're bad at something or that they don't understand it. And I can understand if you're saying, I don't understand it, teach me about it. But a lot of them have no interest in hearing about what you have to say. (laughs) I love my dad, but he's the worst for this. I'll try and tell him about like some physics and he just tries to make like physics puns. That's his response to me trying to tell him about my research. And I'm like, come on, man, like, they're so bad. I appreciate it. But God.
0: Yeah, I think also the cultural thing, too, because I grew up in Asia and that's that's not a thing. Mm -hmm. Like people to a fault, like worship intelligence in a bad way. You You know, when I say intelligence, I don't mean you're good at science. Yeah, exactly. That's actually what it. What happened? Like you're good at math, you're good at science, you're good at certain fields. You're more, you know, you're kind of like socially elevated. It's this kind of weird thing because I didn't believe, you know, I didn't, uh, I still don't think that people are, you know, other people are stupid. They're just not good at science. They're just good at other things. But I think some people glorified certain fields like doctors, engineers. A little too much in in Asia, and you know, that's being smart is almost like like I think when in high school I had my picture like up in like at school like in the front in the front gate because I did some good on exams like like standardized exams and to me it's like that's very egotistical I I wanted them to take it off but you know what can I do it's it's ridiculous sometimes how people are. Um, well, how people think what is valuable in education or or as valuable as a human being.
2: Yeah. Maybe, so I I I thought about it a little bit, and, like, if I'm insecure about something, about myself, there's the strategy where you make fun of it before anyone else does, and then they're laughing with you, not at you, right? Like, that was something I did when I was a young kid. I can't think of any examples, but, like, I would... If there was something like, if I, like, I don't know, had a pimple or something, I guess, I would point it out before other people did. And that way it was like, it's on my terms. And maybe, maybe that's why people, maybe, maybe they have a, maybe they think, you know, doctors and scientists and stuff are a lot, they're, maybe they're a lot smarter than them, even though they're just smart at one thing and maybe not what you're smart at so they they'll make fun of themselves first they'll say oh i'm really bad at math so that way they don't have to kind of listen to you come to that conclusion on your own or something i don't
1: know i think it's interesting being called smart because i i mean people are like oh you're you're in physics you're you're a smarty pie or things like that but A lot of the case, I find, it's not so much being smart. Yes, there is some talent, say, with numbers and with doing calculations, but it's also hard work. I think, Liam, earlier you said it's hard. And doing a degree that is soul-sucking, followed by another degree that is equally soul-sucking, while trying to maintain balance, while performing well to... To another degree, that might be soul-sucking. And and again, soul-sucking in the point where it just envelops your life, but you you try and find balances where you can. It's not just being smart, but it's working hard for it, which I think a lot of people don't see. They just see, oh, well, you're doing this, so you must be smart. You, You did it based on an inherent ability, not hard work.
2: Yeah, it's definitely a lot of a lot of work. Um, I know some really dumb scientists. <laughs> no offense to them. Like I, I could <laughs> I consider myself a dumb scientist, honestly, because like you know I'm good at a couple things, and then I just lack common sense with a lot of other things. My when I was a kid, my grandmother always called me the absent-minded professor, which is funny because I will probably be a professor who's absent-minded one day. So she saw it before anyone else did, but. Yeah, it's it's hard. I, I it's it's a it's a tricky subject I find because I think most people are very smart at certain things, but for some reason they hold scientists who are just smart at their specific things to a higher standard. For some reason,
0: well, to me, it's all about speed. Um, like we're good at science because we are learning it very quickly, and you know anybody can pick up. Let's say uh, a pia- pick a piano and play. You know, and learn it maybe ten years. But Japan can learn what you learn in ten years in five months. Like there is, you know, certain innate things to it too. I mean, you're good at something. You're you're when you're good at it, you do it very quickly. Or you learn things. Pro- you progress quickly, right? And that's just true. You know, nobody well, not everybody is built equal. If everybody is equal, be able to equally learn science at the same pace, we wouldn't have specializations, right? <laughs> you know? So that's that part to it. But I think we're going to be running
1: out of time soon. So anyone want to summarize that up? Yeah, I. it's certainly interesting to see how the media portrays science and how science is conveyed through different media. So whether it's in the news and you have a guest scientist or it's it's a disaster movie with the scientist being ignored, I, I think Don't Look Up was a good movie about that. But it's certainly a very complex topic about how science is actually performed and how the people who actually are doing the science are affected and who they are, what they are, and what they're capable of. So Going forward, if you listen to this and you aren't in science, maybe phone up your nearest scientist and be like, "Hey, what's your favorite thing?" or or talk to them. Try and integrate yourself into a group of scientists just to see. Well, what what what's something new that you can learn?
2: Also, make them listen to what you do. <laughs> Tell them about what you do. Get them out of their science bubble. Make them experience the real world for once. Come on. Agreed.
1: And with that, we will close off this, I guess, two-part discussion about science in the media and just how scientists are in general. And we will transition into our story, as told by Feely. But before we start that, I'll let you know how you can contact us and where you can find us. So we are on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast. We're also on Spotify and hosted by anchor.fm slash hyperthesis. If you want to find us on social media, we are on Instagram at the and you can email Hyperthesispodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions, suggestions for future episodes, or if you would like to be a guest on our episode. Since our whole discussion was on how science is represented and who scientists are like, we would love to have different scientists and tell us about their research on the show and we can ask them questions and everyone can learn something new. So, without further ado, Fili and his story. All right. I was
0: actually thinking of how do I connect <laughs> what do we talk about to my story? And it's like, yeah, it's not very much. So, we talked about how humans operate, especially scientists. So, um, the story today is actually about more of how machines operate, how humans make machines operate. So, this is a story of one of the most influential operating system called Unix. So a little brief history of it and how it comes to exist has a little unusual history. So Unix, Unix, U-N-I-X, it sounds, it's kind of strange, right? <laughs> so it's traditionally, traditionally used on mini computers and you know, workstations, usually among academic communities. But now you can find them on normal personal computers, even in some businesses so it's actually known for its openness and the advantage that you know any unix standard interface can any application can be executed on many types of hardware without having to modify it you think about it, now you have android and stuff and ios you know if you have to create apps for each application it's heavily different but unix usually is the same distribution same system you don't have to modify that much. And back in the days when it first created, you don't have to modify it at all. So it was developed by in the mid-1960s by AT&T, which is a regulated telephone company in the U.S. So in its company's Bell Lab. So among others, people also tried to develop this. So it was an effort to develop a new operating system at the time when computers were very new, they still write in assembly, which is basically a machine language. So they were trying to develop a new operating system called Maltex, which stood for Multiplexed Information and Computer Services. But in the uh, mid-1960s, however, but Bell Lab pulled out of the development in 1969. After that, uh, the member... Uh, members of the AT&T, Ken Thompson, Dennis Ritchie, uh, Douglas McEnroy, McEnroy, and Joe Osana developed and simulated what later evolved into the Unix file system. So so in 1970, the group coined the actual name Unix, at the time spelled U-N-I-C-S, for Uniplex Information and Computing Service, as a pun actually on Multics, because they pull out of maltics so just do Unix. So as the team continued to experiment they deployed their operating system to do some text processing on like the patent department of ATT. and you know it probably worked really well and at the time everything was written in assembly so a <laughs> so shortly after the C programming language was developed and it became a big thing and Unix was rewritten into C, which actually one of the main factors makes it very popular. So, right, because being rewritten to C is enable Unix to be the open system it is today. So at the time, AT&T was not allowed to market computer systems because it's a telephone company and there's an antitrust law. However, the popularity of Unix system grew internally through internal use and license it to university for educational use but not for commercial nevertheless in 1977 commercial licenses for Unix were being granted so all versions of Unix that was based on AT&T work required a license from what at the time called Unix system laboratories which was a license owner at the time so a year after in 1978 I read the research group that developed Unix turned over the distribution of Unix to the Unix support group or called USG, which has an internal version called Programmer's Workbench. So that became a more newer version of Unix that being developed. And in 1982, four years after, the USG introduced what they call a system tree, which bunch of Ideas and modifications from internal versions have many more features. And after that, we have System 5, which was more commercial, which they'll be able to market it very aggressively. So it becomes more and more popular amongst normal users too. And, you know, normally when they release new new versions, the features are from the internal versions that they developed in the research groups. And actually the one of the major development was at the Berkeley Software Distribution, or BSD. People who study computer science or know about computers probably have heard of the BSD a lot. So the computer science Research Group at the University of California at Berkeley, UCB actually developed a series of releases known as, as the Berkeley Software Distribution BSD has many many features that later developed into commercial products so the bsd actually are still used today you may be able to find on maybe lesser known systems like bsd lite net OpenBSD. in fact i myself use what they call free bsd at one point in my many years ago as a data server when i start to like find a way how to distribute data like large data when i was doing some computer graphics and audio stuff between a lot of people and i found free bsd to use and it gave me a great deal of pain and effort to make it work because i didn't know how to use um operating system and i didn't know english very well <laughs> that's a major factor too so one of the most well known descendants of unix is the mac os so if you use mac os by apple it has some remnants from unix because unix was the great 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 grandparent of the mac os x so it was os x was developed uh, from next step or open step os was developed um, by the company next um which steve jobs later got involved and It becomes got bought by Apple, which is our which based on later version of Unix. So we actually see if you go to terminal or basically a command prompt equivalent on your Mac OS, you can still use a lot of Unix or Unix commands that are available. Nevertheless, the Unix is a commercial product, but if you think about people use today it feels like they're all free and open source and what people call associate this name unix with is linux people pronounce linux but it's not actually pronounced linux it's actually pronounced linux which what i call it in my country in my language we call it linux as the actual creator intent intended but apparently when i come here the use of the word Linux was not common. People call it Linux for some reason. So Linux is an open source, meaning that the underlying source code is available freely for everyone. If you have internet, you can look it up. For for the sake of this podcast, I will just say Linux. (laughs) The Linux source code is is available. If you have an internet, you can look it up, download it, modify it, It has what they call a Unix-like system. First released on September 17, 1991, developed by Linus Torvald at the University of Helsinki in Finland. So we call it Unix-like because Unix is a trademarked system. So you can't use it (laughs) without paying the license fee. So if you want to make it free, you have to develop something similar, but not exact. So even though the idea of Linux is based on the, syst- the, the Unix file system, it's not exactly Unix. So, nevertheless, the many of the so- Linux software libraries were provided by at a time called well, actually, it's still called the GNU project, G N U. And GNU, funnily enough, is a recursive acronym. It's from the word GNU's, not Unix because it can't be Unix so it just called itself GNU's not Unix G-N-U since the Linux user uh, GNU's library has a lot of software and libraries and it's open sourced anybody can modify it and release their own distribution and modifications online so it has many developments and many distribution modifications that come out and make it very very popular so inside the linux kernel so what's the core of the system source code um <laughs> linus actually included the audio guide of how to pronounce linux <laughs> because he knows people could not pronounce maybe linux linux so he's actually have a little audio tape or audio file that say oh this is a uh, linux travel is how you pronounce this is Linux, Linux system. <laughs> it's like a L, uh, Linux with UU to use Linux. He's actually rejected uh, the idea of naming the system Linux because he thought it was egotistical, naming, naming it after himself. He, was, he wanted to name it uh, Freaks, which is a mix between Freak, Free, and X. Freaks. However, his coworker didn't like it, and his coworker just like named everything Linux. <laughs> so he later gave in and consented to use of the name Linux. So that's a little fun story to see how one of the most popular source or operating system in research in academic, it's even used in advanced research, are come from because you. You may see some Windows, you may see some Macintosh, but most of the time when you do advanced science or very advanced tech, you always see Linux or whatever-based Unix distribution it has because it's reliable, it's open, and it's free usually. (laughs) And you can modify it without having to break a terms of service or agreement, you whatever you have with Microsoft or Apple. So you can actually fine tune your operating system to work on your specific hardware or whatever purpose you want it to be. And that's going to be the story for today. And on that nice <laughs> story, I would like to end it here. Thank you for listening, everyone. And I hope to hear you again next week. I heard we have a guest for next week.
1: Uh, Thank you everyone for joining. I would just like to say that, again, that this is our 10th episode. So if you want to listen to nine previous episodes, we have those. And it's very nice that we were able to make it to 10 episodes and we've already started working on the next bunch of episodes, which I think we're all looking forward to. So thank you for joining and have a good night. Take care. Toodaloo.